Well, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater again. Uh, my name is David. I serve on staff here, and uh, today I get to bring the word. And before I get into the message, though, I wanted to just make a quick announcement. Uh, last week, Matt talked to you about this Foundations booklet as just a way that we can use to uh, really be discipling other people in our life. Um, and we had some copies available for you at the Welcome Center, um, and you guys took them all because you guys are great. Um, so we, we went and we printed more, so uh, there are more available back there for you. If uh, that's something you want to take advantage of, make sure that you, that you do that today. Last week, we jumped back into a series in Nehemiah that we really started last year. We're asking how we can be a part of of God doing something amazing in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. How we can be a part of, of God starting a movement. How can we be a part of that? And Matt kicked us off last week um, talking about how really that has to start with the Word of God. Um, If we want to be a part of God doing something uh, big in our communities, it has to start with what He has said to us and us being obedient to that. And today we're going to really be talking about the next component of a movement of God, and that is prayer. Uh, that we would be people of prayer. If we want to see God move in the hearts and lives of people around us, prayer is really a vital and a powerful piece of that. And I think many of us probably could have guessed that prayer was going to be on that list, right? Like even if you're here and you're not really sure about this whole Jesus thing, you probably could guess that Christians would say that prayer is important to a movement of God. But how often do we actually take time to stop and to seek God's face? How often before we walk into a big meeting do we stop and pray and make sure our heart and our mind is in a good place? How often before we walk into an important conversation do we actually stop and make sure that we are where we should be and that we're not going to come off the wrong way, that our heart is in the right place before God and with this other person? How often before we have a big decision do we actually take the time to, to stop and seek God's face, make sure we're getting his input on this decision? And I don't know about you, but I know for me, oftentimes I know I should pray about something, but I just don't know where to start. I don't know how I should be praying for a movement of God. Where do we start when we're trying to pray about that? Well, today I'm going to give you two steps for prayer that I think we see here in Nehemiah chapter 9 that will help you as you seek to become a part of what God is doing in your family, in your community, in your workplace. Maybe you're here today and you want to see a movement in your family. Maybe you're the only follower of Jesus in your family and you want your your siblings, your parents, whoever it might be, to to experience the, the hope and the joy that you have found in Jesus. But every time you try and bring up that conversation, it feels like you just get shut down. It feels like they maybe even get angry with you and you just don't know how to move forward. Maybe you want to see a movement in your workplace. You've noticed that the culture there is toxic. Everyone hates being there and they hate the people they work with. And you want to be a part of making that a workplace where people actually enjoy being there and can enjoy the people they work with. But how do we start? How do you see something like that happen? Maybe you want to see a movement in your community. You look around you and you see the negative effects of generations of sin. And you want to be a part of turning that around. But where does that start? How does that happen? How can we be a part of what God might do instead of just standing on the sideline waiting for someone else to do something about it? Well, these are the very questions that Nehemiah was facing in the Old Testament. 
We talked about how he had led the people back uh, and, and had led them to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And as incredible as that was, um, they didn't have modern tools at all, and they were able to do it in quite a short time. As incredible as that was, that really was the easy part in comparison to trying to bring the people back to following God closely. People of Israel had really wandered rather far from God and had not been closely following him for a long time. And Nehemiah had the task of bringing them back to God. And we saw last week how step one of that was going to the word, making sure that they understood what it said and actually obeyed it, followed what God had said to them. And the next, we're going to see the next step was prayer here in chapter Nine. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. And if you don't have a, a copy of the Word of God, we'd love to give you one at our Welcome Center. But let's start in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sin and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and then spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were a bunch of names I'm not going to pronounce because I'll get it wrong. Um, They cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, again, I'm not going to try, said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And this was what they prayed. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. You chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. And the text continues on in the same kind of fashion where they are praying to God and they are really praising him for who he is. And so as we seek to start a movement of God, that is step number one. We need to pray backward. And by backward, I mean we need to look back on all that God has done for us, all that he's done in creation and all that he has done in our lives. Step number one is that we need to pray Backward, And I think there's really two uh, ways that we can do that. The first one is what we see here in these verses, that we need to praise God. We need to praise God. We need to remember all that he has done. And really, again, throughout this chapter, if you take time this week, I'd encourage you to take time to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, and you'll see again and again, it's really almost like a mini history of the people of Israel. And they go through, and they're just praising God for all that he has done. They're looking back on how he has shown himself faithful time and time again. So my question for us this morning is, how often do we actually take the time to do that? How often when we are going to prayer, do we actually take the time to stop and thank God for what he has done? 
I know so often in my prayer life, I just spit off this laundry list of things that I want God to do for me without taking time to stop and thank him for all the things he has already done, all the prayers he has already answered, all the things he has done that I didn't even ask him for. There's so much we can praise him for. So often we think of prayer as just asking God to do things for us, but I think the Bible talks about how it's really so much more than that. If you think about it, we really shouldn't be that surprised that we don't really want to spend time in prayer, if we're being honest. Sometimes we see prayer as maybe a little bit annoying, maybe a little bit boring. We probably shouldn't be surprised that we have that view of prayer if all we see it as is making requests of God, if we're just asking God to do things for us. I think some of us kind of view prayer like we do our relationship with our bank. For me, my bank only exists to hold my money. I don't have a relationship with the people there. I met them like one time when I set up my bank and I don't even remember what her name was. Like my my relationship with my bank is entirely about them holding and then giving to me my money when I ask for it, right? Like that's, that's all it's about. I don't stop by the bank to be like, hey guys, what's up? How you doing? I just don't have a relationship with them. I'm not excited about my relationship with my bank. I'm excited when they do their job, right? And I get my money, right? But I'm not excited about my relationship with my bank. I think some of us view God a little bit like that sometimes. We show up at the ATM or the bank that is God and and we ask him to give us the things that we request of him. We submit our deposit of maybe going to church, maybe reading our Bible, maybe serving throughout the week. and, And we think that if we've done that, then he is obligated to then give us the things that we want in prayer. And that's all we see our relationship in, uh, to God in prayer as, We just see it as, well, we're supposed to do certain things and then he's obligated to give us stuff back. And we shouldn't be surprised if we're not excited about prayer, if that is our only view of prayer, if if our view of prayer is limited to that. See, the Bible portrays prayer as really an end in itself, but I think so often we see it as a means to an end. It's a means to getting what we want. You've never really spent time in prayer, just thanking God for who he is and and what he's done for you. I encourage you to take some time this week and just try and do nothing but thank him for who he is and for what he's done for you. Maybe just sit down with a piece of paper and try and write out a list of all that God has done for you. I think you'd be amazed at how long your list gets very, very, very quickly. I think you'd be amazed at how much time you could spend in prayer just thanking him for who he is and for what he has done. Maybe for some inspiration, you could go to the Psalms and and just pray through a Psalm. I know I've found that really helpful in my uh, prayer life to make sure I'm not just listing off things I want God to do, but I'm actually praising him for who he is, because that's really what the Psalms are, right? They are already written out prayers, and you can use those to direct or inspire or even give words to your own prayers. But maybe for some of you this morning, Trying to think about the good things God has done for you is difficult because you feel like he's let you down. You prayed for something and God did not answer the way that he or that you wanted him to and you've let that no or that not yet really color everything else in your life. You see everything through the lens of that. Maybe you prayed for that cancer to go away but it took your loved one. Maybe you prayed for God to save your spouse, but they're still very far from him. Maybe you prayed for God to give you a a better job, but you just feel like you're stuck in that place that you don't want to be. 
And I know it can be so hard in those moments to go to God when he said no or not yet to something that we desperately, desperately want. I remember walking through this with my family. Um, my, my sister had a, a miscarriage late in her pregnancy. And as you do when your sister's pregnant, right, what do you do? You pray for a healthy mom and you pray for a healthy baby. And everything was great. Um, so all our checkups were fine. She was fine. Baby was fine. Everything was healthy. They'd just gotten married real recently. Got pregnant pretty fast. They were so happy, so overwhelmed with how God was moving in their lives. And then she went to, uh, it was during her second trimester, she went to a checkup. Everything was supposed to be normal and found out that her baby didn't have a heartbeat. And I can remember sitting with my family in the hospital and holding Samuel's tiny little lifeless body and wondering, what, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this pain? What am I supposed to do with these questions? God, I don't understand why you would allow this to happen to our family. Well, our family, we decided that we were going to take all that pain, all that heartache, all those questions, all that doubt, and we were going to lay them at the feet of Jesus. It didn't take away all the pain, didn't answer all of our questions, didn't make everything okay all of a sudden, but we decided that we were going to run to him instead of from him. And that gave us an anchor in the middle of the storm. It gave us hope in a hopeless situation. It gave us assurance that God had not abandoned us, but was actually right there with us in the middle of it. I think it's in those moments of pain that we actually need to run to God even more. We need to take our disappointment, our anger, and our frustration to him. I think sometimes we feel like in Christian circles, like we're not allowed to say those things to God. But what else can we do with them? We don't go to God with those questions, with that anger, with that pain. Where else are we supposed to take it? We're left with no other course but to try and deny our feelings, which doesn't lead anywhere good. To deny reality, which never works out. Maybe we'll find someone else who's negative like us and just spiral downward. None of that's, there's no other healthy course. If we don't take all of that and, and run to Jesus, it's not going to lead somewhere healthy. It's often right in the middle of those things that don't look so good to us that God is working on us and working around us to do something incredible. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's, our, it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So maybe God is looking to use that pain in your life to awaken you or maybe the community around you to an amazing movement of God. Maybe he's going to use it to build the kingdom in ways that you never even thought were possible. You might not get all the answers that you're looking for, but if you turn to him in your pain, I think just like our family did, you will find a loving father who's there with open arms for you. Well, there's a second way that we can pray backward that we see here in the text of Nehemiah chapter 9, and, and that is to spend time in confession. In confession, we remember what we have done. In praise, we remember what God has done. In confession, we remember what we have done. Going back to the second half of verse 2, it says, They stood in their places and confessed their sin and the sin of their ancestors. Skipping down to verse 16, it says, But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. 
They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. And again, the prayer continues on like this, with the people confessing their their own sin and the sin of their ancestors to God. We really see that throughout this uh, this chapter, there's, there's an attitude of confession, of saying, God, we have messed up. And so my question for us this morning is, is how often do we actually follow that example? How often when we are in prayer, do we actually take time to stop and confess our sins? I know for me, I want to just skip past this. I don't like it very much, honestly. I want to just continue on and pretend like nothing happened. But you know in your relationships, that doesn't work out well, right? When you hurt your spouse or your spouse hurts you, you can't just pretend like nothing happened. It's going to come up eventually, right? You've got to have some time of confession. Really, confession is, is foundational to any healthy relationship, and that is true in our relationship with God. As sinners who break God's law every single day, there's probably, I know there's more in my life than I probably want to admit to you or even want to know is there myself. So I've got to be somebody who takes the time to stop, confess my sins to God. I was talking to a guy in my small group recently, and he was struggling with uh, a sin he had committed in his life, and he, he felt like as a follower of Jesus, it's something that he shouldn't be struggling with anymore. He's like, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. Why is this a problem for me? And, and I took him to 1 John 1, 8 and 9, which has become one of my favorite verses recently, because these verses just have such amazing hope for us. Let's look at those. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What I told him was this this letter is written to Christians. So verse 8 is saying there will be sin in your life. Don't try and deny it. Don't try and pretend like it's not there. Don't try and pretend like you're better than that. If we, can, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And so there will be sin in our lives. But the amazing news here in verse 9 is that if we confess, God is faithful to forgive. Notice that it doesn't say he's um, maybe going to be willing if you do certain things. It doesn't say he might forgive if you try really hard to make up for it. It doesn't say he'll consider forgiving us. It doesn't say if we uh, perform a certain way and make up for what we've done, then he'll forgive us. No, no, no. It says he is faithful to forgive and to purify us. It's as if God is there waiting with open arms for us if we will just turn to him in confession. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, if you will turn around, you will be forgiven. You can't get to a point where you out-sin God's mercy. You can't get to a point where all of a sudden his forgiveness runs out and he says, you know what, you've met your limit, I'm done with you. That's not going to happen. He is faithful to forgive time and time and time again. That's what's so amazing about his grace. There's such hope for sinners like you and like me in these verses. I think one area of confession that probably many of us, I know I need to walk in as it relates to to starting a movement, is that we often complain about the very things that God wants us to be a part of changing. 
I know over the last few years, I've realized that the very things I complain about, am annoyed with, am frustrated with in my family, in my workplace, in my community, those very things, I'm like, why is it that way? God wants me to be a part of doing something about changing that. But I know I often so want to just be like, oh man, somebody really should do something about that. Oh man, these people, what's wrong with them? Why aren't they doing things differently? It's really easy to just complain and moan and grumble when God wants us to get off our rear end and actually do something about it. So if we want to see God start a movement in our communities, then we need to first, maybe some of us, confess that maybe we've been in the way of what God wants to do. And then we need to get up and start being a part of that solution. Step one in prayer is to pray backward, to remember what we've done and what God has done. Well, secondly, step two is to pray forward, to pray forward. This is where we uh, look to God to do what only he can do. Jump down to verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardships that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all of our people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Jump down to verse 36. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So as we pray forward, I think what we can do from the example we find here in Nehemiah is we can request, we can ask God to change what only he can change. That's what we see really through, throughout this prayer. They're, they're not super specific with it. They're not very direct with it. But I think as they're taking their case before God, as they're saying, we are in great distress. So it's very clear. It's implied that they're saying, God, do something about this. Only you can change this. Help us, please. Help us. What's interesting about the prayers in the Bible is that you will find very few requests in them. Most of the prayers in the Bible are focused on praying backward on remembering what God has done and remembering what we have done. You will find very, very few requests in the prayers recorded for us in Scripture. But at the same time, the Bible is also clear that God loves to hear from us and that he moves in response to our prayers. And so we shouldn't be at all afraid to make our requests known to him, to ask him to change what only he is able to change. But here's what's so amazing, I think, about the pattern of prayer we see here uh, exemplified for us in Scripture. When we start with confession and praise, it helps us get our hearts and our minds in the right place first before we make our requests to God. We remember all that God is and all that He has done for us. Remember who we are and how we have wronged God and how we don't deserve a single good thing from Him. It helps us come to him with our requests and in, in put in their proper place. When we remember that he has already met our greatest need in Jesus, all of a sudden that, that, that need for a job, that need for whatever it might be, it becomes smaller in a good way. All of a sudden we remember that God has been faithful to us time and time 
and time again. We remember all that he has done and we realize he's not going to fail us now. He's not going to abandon us now. We realize we, we come to him with a greater humility because we understand that we don't deserve what we are asking for. We don't even deserve for him to listen to us, yet he does. He loves to hear from us. I think praying this way helps us first center our hearts and our requests in the goodness of God. And can I encourage you, as you make requests to God, I think we need to be a people who ask him to do big things. I know in my life, I can get so small-minded. I can doubt God's goodness. I can doubt his power. And I end up asking him for some pretty small things. But God is a big God who loves to do big things. And I think we should be bold in our requests and ask him to do amazing things. And I'm not talking about praying for a mansion and a job making six figures. I'm talking about things that make a difference for eternity. Things that will outlast our lives. Pray for God to, to reconcile that marriage that you just feel is ruined. Pray for God to save that person that you think is just too far God. Pray for God to turn around that community that's been suffering for generations because of their own sin. Pray for big things. He is a big God. I want to make sure that if God decides not to move in a big way, it's because he decided to say no, and not because I failed to ask him for it. I don't want to get to the end of my life and get to heaven and be before God and realize that I missed out on so much because I simply didn't ask him. I think I want the same for us. I want the same for Bridgewater Halstead, that we would be a people who ask big things of a big God. In church, we actually have an opportunity to do exactly that next week. We've got a day of prayer that Matt mentioned uh, last week when he was talking to you. We've got some signups for that at the Welcome Center. And, and what we're asking you to do is to come here between uh, 6 a.m. and 12 p.m. to pick a half-hour slot, sign up for that, and just spend some time in prayer. We'll have some room hosts for you that will kind of help guide and direct that time. And we'll also have some prayer guides that will kind of do the same that you can use or, or choose not to. But what we're asking you to do is, is to be a people of prayer. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, can I just pray at home by myself? Well, the answer is yes. I hope you do. I hope you, you do often. But we, uh, there's something special about wh what happens when God's people come together and seek his face together. Jesus said, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. There's something amazing. There's, we feel the presence of God in a different way when we seek his face together. And so that's what we want to do next week. We really want to follow uh, the example of Nehemiah and be a people who are committed to prayer. We'll see next week in the next chapter that this prayer really sparks a, a movement among the people of Israel, a revival like had not been seen for generations and generations. It was all a result of them first becoming people of the word, coming back to what God had said, and then being a people of prayer. And so if we want to see God do the same thing here in Halstead and in our surrounding communities, we need to be a people of prayer. I think one great way we can do that is joining together in prayer for six hours next week with our day of prayer. So I'd encourage you to sign up for that. And maybe you've never done something like that before, and it seems kind of intimidating to to pray for 30 minutes. Maybe that seems like a long time, but I would, uh, I would promise you that that time will actually go far faster than you can ever imagine. And I would, I would just challenge you to try it. Maybe it'll blow away your expectations. I think the story of Bridgewater Church is really a story of regular people who have followed God and have asked him to do big things, and he has shown up time and time and time again. I mean, the campuses that we've started 
the people who've gotten saved, people who've gotten baptized, people who are being discipled, all that God is doing here. We're nothing special. We're just people who have showed up and said, God, I'm willing and will you do amazing things? And he has again and again and again and again. We pray all the time that God would not remove his hand of blessing from Bridgewater Church. All of this is from God, and we get to be a part of that through our prayers, and I think that's an amazing thing. And so again, I'd encourage you guys to join us next week as we seek God's face together. Well, not only do we get to put that into practice next week, but we're actually going to do that right now through communion. As you came in, there should have been one of these little cups on your chair, so I'd encourage you to find that. But really, in communion, we practice what we've been talking about. In communion, we look back at what we have done, how we have wronged God. We look back on how God has provided for us in Jesus. And then we look forward to what he's going to do when he comes back again. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We look back. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in communion, we are looking back on all that God has done for us, that he has provided a way for us to be forgiven in Jesus, for our sins to be taken care of. But then Paul goes on in, in verse 26 and says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in communion, we are really proclaiming the gospel to the world as we await Jesus to come back for us and take us to be with him. So in communion, we're looking back and we're looking forward to all that God will do. And since communion is designed to remind us of what Jesus has done for us, if you're new here and uh, you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd encourage you not to participate in this because this is something that Jesus specifically commanded his followers to do. But if you have any questions about what it means to follow Jesus, we would love to have a conversation with you. So let's go ahead and take part in communion together. If you peel back that first layer, you should be able to access that little cracker there. Let's eat that together, remembering this is the body of Christ. If you peel back that next layer there, you should be able to access uh, that juice. And remember, this, is, this juice is just a symbol. It's a reminder for us that Jesus was willing to have his body broken and his blood spilled so that we could have a relationship with him. Let's take that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you were willing to send Jesus to a world that despised him, a world that rejected him, so that he could pay the price for our sins. What we deserve to pay, he took on himself. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, that he made a way back to you when there was no other way. We couldn't make it back on our own. We couldn't do enough. We couldn't be enough. Jesus was enough for us. 
Father, we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that you have made a way so that we could be restored to you. That when I was far from you, when I wanted nothing to do with you, you came after me because you wanted me in your family. Father, may we never grow old and tired or stale with that amazing news. Pray that this wouldn't become old hat, this wouldn't become boring or just tradition, but that we'd every single time be overwhelmed that you would love a people like us. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We want to look back and and remember how you have provided first in Jesus and greatest in Jesus, but even beyond that, you have protected us, you have provided for us, you have done so much, so much of which we don't even really know about or thank you for or recognize. God, you are a good God. And Father, we want to look back and remember that we are a people who are undeserving. We are people who have broken your law. We are people who have gone far from you. Even, but even in the middle of that, you sent Jesus for us. And Father, we want to be a people who also look forward to all that you are going to do. We pray that you would do amazing things through Bridgewater Halstead and, and through Bridgewater, all of our campuses and even the surrounding communities and in this nation. Father, we pray that you would do something amazing, something beyond our expectations and our hopes and our dreams. We pray that you would turn around those communities that seem too far gone, that you'd turn around those marriages that seem like they could never be restored, that you'd turn around those lives who are so far from you. Father, we ask you to do big things, and we know that you are a big God. Thank you so much for Jesus and for all that he has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.